0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right. Well, this morning... We're going to be looking at Thomas, and um, I've labeled this sermon a walking contradiction. And I think maybe all of us know people who are walking contradictions. I uh, grew up in a little town in Indiana, a little farming community called Rishaville, Indiana. It's spelled Rushaville, but don't go there and say Rushaville. It's Rushville. <laughs> And uh, our church, my home church, is about 190 years old. And there are families that have been in that church. Yeah, I, gotta, oh, I, gotta fix it. I don't have it on right. Here we go. Try that. Probably my ear. <laughs> it's the wrong shape. <laughs> but my home church is about 190 years old. There are families in that church that have been there from, from the founding of the church. So my family and my wife's family, Kathy, uh, our families have been a part of that church for many, many, many years. So I grew up in that church as a small boy, all the way up was married in that church. Uh, That's the church that ordained me as as a preacher. So growing up in that church, being a farming community church, people were very close. Everybody in the church was very close. And there was a man in, in in this church. His name was John, a man that I had known, went to school with these kids, played in a band with these kids through youth group. And John was, and his wife were one of those families that always came to church. John was always very quiet. He served on the church board. He was a deacon, uh, very faithful. There every Sunday. Well, after I graduated and. Kathy and I went to Bible College, and then I got, Kathy and I got married, and after first semester of Bible College, I ended up joining the Air Force, and went to the Air Force, moved away from my home for several years, and then came back. Well, when I came back to my hometown, I went to work in a factory, a steel mill. I went working there as a construction millwright. Well, in this factory also worked John from my home church. And uh, I didn't know that John worked there. Well, didn't take very long for me to realize that John was a walking contradiction. Quiet John, serving John in church, in the factory, was loud, vulgar, foul-mouthed John in the factory. And it blew me away. He was racist. He was a troublemaker. <laughs> he was the total opposite of everything that I had seen and known of John in church, and I just couldn't believe it, and here John and I were working side by side, and he would carry on like this Monday through Saturday, and then Sunday we'd be sitting in church, and John was back to his quiet servant self, and I thought, whoa, Lord, never let me be like that. Well, this morning we're going to look at another walking contradiction, and that's Thomas. And we're going to, what I want to do, we're going to be looking in the Gospel of John. There's three times in the Gospel of John that John records the words of Thomas. Now, Thomas also had another name. His name was Didymus. Both of these names mean twin. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about Thomas, but what it does tell us lets us know that Thomas was indeed a walking contradiction. And so what I want to do this morning is go through these three times in the Gospel of John where John records things that that Thomas say. And I think we we can kind of learn just from the words that Thomas says and his attitude about what kind of a man Thomas was. Well, the first time John records the words of Thomas is in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at John 11, verses 1 through 16. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, He stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, Only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, There are twelve hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go to and die with Jesus. And you've got to love this. <laughs> Jesus has just received word that Lazarus, his good, close, and personal friend, is about to die. And there's no way that Jesus can make it to where Lazarus is before he dies. So, Jesus decides to make this a very special occasion for the twelve disciples. He, he sees this as an opportunity to teach and to reveal more of who he is. So Jesus gives them the news. We're going into Judea. And how do they respond? Jesus, are you crazy? <laughs> have you forgotten that they want to kill you there? But Jesus said, no, we have to go because Lazarus is asleep. I love the words that Jesus uses here. But you got to love their response. Well, okay, if he's asleep, don't you think he'll probably wake up on his own? We don't really need to risk our lives to be his alarm clock. Then Jesus very plainly says, no, guys, you don't get it. Lazarus is dead, and we are going to Judea. And so how do they respond to this? They're going to go back into this hostile territory. Well, I think we have to understand a little bit about the times back then. Things were not working out like the disciples had wanted them to work out, like they thought things were going to work out. They thought that Jesus was going to defeat the Romans and be the new political king of Israel. He would give them positions of power. I could just see Peter being the Secretary of Defense. <laughs> They thought there was going to be free food, a loaf of Roman meal bread on their doorsteps every morning. But in Judea, things were not working out that way. But there was also something beyond the political reality that bothered the disciples. And that was the fact that Lazarus had died. Because you see, somewhere along the way, the disciples had gotten this idea that Jesus had power over death. And now his closest friend, a dear beloved friend, has died and Jesus could do nothing. He was powerless over this death. So the disciples were filled with doubts. If they followed Jesus into Judea, he might be killed. But worse yet, they might be killed. But in the middle of all their doubt, Thomas speaks up. And you got to love what Thomas says. Let's go to and die with Jesus. This is our first clue into the life of Thomas. And really it's interesting if you think that it wasn't Peter who said those words. I think we often think of Peter as being the very brash and bold and, you know, the, the one who's ready to just jump in with both feet. But here's Thomas taking the lead in this situation. And... Truthfully, they, had, I mean, they had, had seen what had happened the last time they had been there. They saw that they tried to stone Jesus. But we see that Thomas was committed to Jesus regardless of the outcome. It's very probable that Thomas had studied the other religions of that day. And he knew that they had nothing to offer. Maybe Jesus wasn't a perfect hope but he was his only hope. As far as Thomas was concerned, he would rather die for a good man than live for no reason at all. And so Thomas was committed to Jesus regardless of the outcome. I've thought about this in my own life, and I've tried to think of of areas and opportunities in my own life where I've had an opportunity to be committed regardless of the outcome. And as I was thinking about this, the first thing that came to my mind were my kids. Kathy and I have adopted all four of our children. And when we found out we couldn't have kids, we worked through all that. And, and then when we realized that we wanted to adopt, what well, that was making a, ki- a commitment regardless of the outcome. And our very first child that we adopted, our oldest daughter Diane, when we got the news about this mother that wanted to give this child up, we began to find out a little bit about the background of the family. We realized that there was a lot of circumstances in this mother's life that could have a very um, negative effect on our oldest daughter, even through her birth. But when we said yes, we are going to adopt this child even before she was born we were committed to that child regardless of the outcome well when she was born she was born premature she weighed three pounds fourteen ounces when she was born and spent the first two weeks in an incubator we had no idea we were just getting reports trying to hear back from the doctor and through our lawyer about what was going on with this little girl Well, we we had no idea what kind of health problems that she could have. During that two weeks, we could have backed out. It would have been easy to say, no, we're going to move on and, and wait for another child. But we were committed regardless of the outcome. We wanted that baby. We wanted her just the same as if Kathy had carried her in her own womb. We were committed to her. And so it's been the story with all, all four of our children. And I think this is what we see here in the life of Thomas. He is committed to Jesus, even if it means going to Judea and losing his life. So Thomas and the disciples, they followed. They went with Jesus into Judea. And he wasn't killed. In fact, the opposite happened. Instead of death, it was life. Life. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so he was the Messiah after all. But note that the disciples would not have known it. They would not have experienced this if it had not been for Thomas. If Thomas had not really... Thomas put out a challenge when he said, All right, let's go. Let's go and die with Jesus. Well, What were the others going to (laughs) say? I mean... Think about you if you were in that situation. Are you going to be the one that's going to shrink away? No, I don't think so. So Thomas put out the challenge. The disciples followed and they saw, saw this tremendous miracle take place. And so we see that Thomas was committed regardless of the outcome. Okay, let's move on to the second time that John in his gospel records the words of Thomas. It's the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, the first five verses. Jesus had just told the disciples that one of them was going to betray him. One of them was going to deny him and that he was going to leave. It wasn't exactly a comforting bedtime story that the disciples were hearing, but he told them these things weren't going to be all that bad. So let's read in John 14, the first five verses. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. And here comes Thomas. No, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? <laughs> have you ever been in a classroom teacher gives a a really compli- complicated explanation to something and you know that not <laughs> there isn't anyone in the class including you that understands a single word the teacher has said. And then the teacher really puts you in a hard spot by saying, now nobody is going to have any questions about this simple basic information, are they? And everybody's going, no, (laughs) no questions, teacher. (laughs) Well, that's what's going on here. No one, none of the disciples have any idea what Jesus is talking about. And no one wants to admit it until Thomas speaks up again. And he says, no, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How should we know the way? Well, this was a gutsy thing for Thomas to do because he risked being rebuked by Jesus himself. And heaven knows that the disciples should have understood by now what Jesus was going to do. And what he meant when he said these words. And I just know that Thomas was probably ridiculed by the rest of the disciples. I mean, I can hear them now. Yeah, we understand, right guys? What's wrong with you, Thomas? Don't you get it? (laughs) But Thomas didn't get it. And we find that Thomas wasn't just committed to Jesus regardless of the outcome, but he was also going to be honest with Jesus regardless of the consequences and what is so neat is that Thomas's honesty got him one of the most beautiful replies in all of scripture when Jesus said I am the way and the truth and the life and with that Thomas understood Thomas got it Philip didn't understand And Philip had some more questions to ask, as you see if you'll read on down here in chapter 14. But Thomas understood, and he understood because he wasn't going to pretend to understand something he didn't, and he wasn't going to pretend to be something he wasn't. Thomas would be honest with Jesus no matter what. In his best-selling book, The Road Less Traveled, Scott Peck says there are four things necessary for us to become mature human beings. And I want to look at those this morning. The reason I'm putting these in here is because as we look at Thomas, I think we're going to see a progression. We're going to see a progression of Thomas becoming a mature believer. And that's what... The Christian life is about is that we are maturing, that we are constantly changing from where we are today to more of what God wants us to be. The first thing that Scott Peck says is that we have to accept responsibility for our own problems. While it's true that a lot of our difficulties in life come from our families of origin, we have to get over that. We have to get beyond blaming our parents for everything. Get that, Amy? (laughs) We have to realize that we are the only ones who can change the course of our own lives. So we have to accept responsibility for our own problems. The second thing necessary to become a mature human being is to be able to delay gratification. What do I mean by delay gratification? The way Scott Peck puts it is this way. It means putting the best things off until the appropriate time. real simple way to explain this is how do you eat a piece of cake? Do you eat the cake first and save the icing till later? Do you eat the icing first and then eat the rest of the cake? Or would you like... My kids, when they were young, I always love giving our kids cake on their first birthday. It's fun to watch how they do. They eat the icing and throw the cake away. (laughs) Throw the cake on the floor. Well, if you do that, you've not learned to delay gratification. So Scott Peck says that one one of the four basic principles of becoming a mature human being, the second one, is the ability to delay gratification putting the best things off until the appropriate time. The third thing necessary for us to become mature human beings is that we learn to do what Peck calls balancing, or putting aside unproductive patterns of behavior to take on new and more productive patterns of behavior, or to put it simply, to keep growing up. There's a book out that has a great title. I haven't read the book, but the title, <laughs> the title is The Five Divorces of a Healthy Marriage. Now think about that. <laughs> Talk about a contradiction. The Five Divorces of a Healthy Marriage. But what the title acknowledges is that we have to continually, continuously divorce ourselves from previous ways of behaving to take on new and more productive ways of behaving if we are to keep our marriage growing through the years. The things that brought us together as newlyweds are not the things that make us good parents, which aren't the things that will hold us close once the children are gone. As we go through each stage, we must put aside one way of behaving to take on a new and more productive way of behaving. And so Scott Peck in his book says this is, this is important for us to be able to become mature human beings, to become mature adults. The fourth thing that is necessary for us to become mature human beings is that we be dedicated to honesty no matter what. Now, the fact is that everybody lies, Is there anybody here today who's never told a lie? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Because you'll be lying if you did. (laughs) But it's the dedication to truth and honesty that leads us to maturity. The dedication to truth and honesty. And, you know, this is, I think, for most of us as parents, this is one of the things that we really try to, to bring home to our kids, is to always be honest. Our son, Sam, who's now in college, when he was in high school, we had a rule. And that rule was that he was to never ride on a motorcycle without a helmet. And he knew the rule. All of his friends had motorcycles, and they were always going into town. He, but we had a rule that he was to never get on a motorcycle without a helmet. Well, God, in his great infinite mercy and wisdom, Knew that Sam was not riding, or was not wearing a helmet when he was riding on the motorcycles with his friends. So one night, Kathy and I had been out to eat. We went out for a late dinner, and it was about eleven o'clock at night. And we were coming back from downtown, coming up Chiang Mai Hong Road to the Big C. Well, get over in the turn lane right there at Big C, and guess who's on a motorcycle in front of us with two of his buddies, Sam. <laughs> None of the three boys were wearing helmets. So Kathy and I are sitting there in the car going, hmm, <laughs> can't wait to get home and have a talk with this boy. <laughs> so we did I didn't beep the horn or nothing. Just, just let them go on, and we went on home. And about midnight, Sam gets home, and I'm waiting up on him when he gets home. So I said, Sam, where you been? Oh, just... Down at the guy's house hanging out. I said, Oh, did you guys go anywhere? Uh, yeah, we went into town. Okay, so how'd you go? Take Song Tao? No, we rode the motorcycle. Oh, did you wear your helmet? Yes, really? <laughs> I said, Well, guess who was sitting behind you at the light at Big C on Hongdong Road? And you should have seen his eyes. <laughs> His eyes got real big, and I said, I can tell you who was on the bike, what order you were sitting, and that none of you were wearing a helmet. <laughs> so we had a nice little talk that night. <laughs> you know, I think for most of us, we, we tell our kids that honesty is not the best policy. It is the only policy. And I think that's a good lesson for us to learn so for us to become mature human beings, we have to be dedicated to honesty no matter what. Thomas was going to be honest with Jesus no matter what. And his honesty let him know that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. <clears throat> okay, now we come to the third time that John in his gospel records the words of Thomas. And this is in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter. You can read this. Most of you know the story. This is the story of the resurrection that John records in his Gospel. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And the disciples and other Christians were meeting together together for the first Sunday evening church service. Well, at least that's what I call it. when all of a sudden, through a bolted door, who enters the room? It's Jesus. Now, I don't know about your Sunday evening church services, but I would think that would pretty much really uh, enliven your church service (laughs) if Jesus were to just suddenly appear through a bolted door. Jesus comes in and he gave the disciples some instructions and he sent them on their way. But the interesting thing to note is that Thomas was not there. Thomas was not a part of this meeting. Evidently, the death of Jesus had been just one step too many for Thomas to take. Sure, Jesus had power over Lazarus' death, but evidently he didn't have power over his own death. And so now all Thomas wants to do is to go down in death in battle for a good man, But Jesus hadn't even allowed him to do that. And so what does Thomas do? He goes off alone. He goes off by himself. And what I want you to notice here is that there is not much difference between Judas and Peter and Thomas. One betrayed Jesus, one denied him, and one walked out on the rest of his friends when they needed him the most. However, there is a difference. There is a difference. And the difference was not in their failure. And I want you to get this. The difference was not in their failure. The difference is in what they did after they failed. And this is, if if I want you to get anything this morning, this is so important, especially for you younger people sitting here today. The difference was not in their failure. The difference is in what they did after they failed. Judas focused on his failure and he killed himself. Peter focused beyond his failure to the Christ who loved him even though he failed and he changed the world for the cause of Christ. And so here's Thomas. He's sitting on a fence. Which way would he go? Would he be like Judas, or would Thomas be like Peter? The rest of the disciples go looking for Thomas. They sought him out. Thomas, we've seen Jesus. And what does Thomas reply? Sure, you've seen him. I'll bet you have. I'll believe that when I see where the nails went into his hands and the sword went into his side. When I can stick my finger into those wounds, then I'll believe. But his friends did not give up on him. And finally, Thomas makes that fateful decision to return to his friends and to find his answers. It was a Monday night. It was eight days after the resurrection. The disciples were meeting together for the first Monday evening Bible study when all of a sudden, again, through a bolted door, here comes Jesus. And John in his gospel records these words. He says, peace be with you. Notice he did not say peace to everybody but Thomas. (laughs) Thomas, you blew it a week ago Sunday. So no peace for you, boy. (laughs) But before Thomas even has a chance to ask him, what does Jesus do? He says, come, touch where the nails went into my hands. Touch where the sword went into my side. I don't know about you, but if I had been Jesus, I probably wouldn't have done that. I would have said, Hey, Thomas, I see you're finally here. It's about time. And you can forget about touching me, guy. I think that's what I would have done. (laughs) But that's not our Jesus. That's not our Lord. Jesus saw one of his own with a need. And in a way, in the way in which Jesus worked, in the flesh, he reached out and he touched that need in Thomas. And I don't mind telling you, I'm jealous of Thomas. There are times in my own life when for the life of me, I cannot figure out which end is up. There is nothing that I really want any more than for Jesus to reach out with real, live flesh and blood, with real arms and hands, and just hold me. And I think we all know what what that is like, what we would so much like to be able to experience, what Thomas had the opportunity to do. But in the same way today... Jesus sees us with our needs, and in the way in which he works today, he reaches out and he touches us in our needs. Through the laughter of a child, the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset, a kindness offered or a forgiveness extended, he reaches out and he touches our needs. And do you realize that the Bible does not record, or at least John doesn't record, doesn't tell us whether Thomas actually did touch the wounds in Jesus' body. But we do know what Thomas did do. He fell at the feet of Jesus and he cried, My Lord and my God. It shows that Thomas did know what Jesus was talking about back in the 14th chapter when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now, here, we have a third attribute of Thomas's personality that we should follow. Not only was Thomas committed to Jesus regardless of the outcome, not only was he honest with Jesus regardless of the consequences, But he was also responsive to Jesus regardless of past failures. It would have been easy for Thomas to have said, Oh, Jesus, I am such a walking contradiction. How could I ever, ever do anything for you? But instead of focusing on his failure, Thomas chose to focus beyond his failure to the Christ who loved him even in the midst of his failure. And we see that Thomas and the rest of the disciples changed the world for the cause of Christ. They were committed regardless of the outcome, honest regardless of the consequences, and responsive regardless of past failures. They knew they would fail You and I know we will fail. They knew they were all walking contradictions, but they also knew that Jesus had left no other way for his word to be spread but by these walking contradictions. And when they failed, they picked themselves up, they dusted themselves off, and they went about the business of telling people the good news that God loves us, weaknesses and all. And for all of that, what do we do for Thomas? Truthfully, we give him a bum rap. We call him Doubting Thomas. But the truth is, is that we should call him Growing Thomas. And like him, we should all be growing up. For in so doing, We, you and I, walking contradictions can change the world for the cause of Christ. This morning we have an opportunity to respond to Jesus, regardless of our past failures, as we respond to him through communion. It's a time this morning that we have set aside for us to remember, to remember what Jesus has done for you and I. Jesus came because we are walking contradictions. It's just the bottom line. We are all liars. We are all people who have failed and continue to fail. But the good news, the good news is that God loves us infinitely, infinitely, because that's who we are. And this morning as we take communion, it's an opportunity for us to, As I said, to remember, to reflect, to respond to Jesus. As the ushers come and pass out the elements, uh, the praise band is going to come and they're going to play some songs for us. After the bread and the cup have been passed, I would ask that you hold them and then we will eat and drink together after everything has been passed. So spend some time this morning. As you receive the bread and the cup, pray and respond to what Jesus has done for you just as He did for Thomas. You know, scripture admonishes us to uh, examine our hearts and especially before we partake in communion. So uh, I thought this would be a good song to share with you about examining our hearts. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.